Good evening. You are listening to a pre-holiday Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. And tonight, we are joined by our producer stepping out of the virtual booth where we have contained him and sealed him with various spells, is Michael Hermes. Hello. Uh, apparently, we're also joined by Fraser Brown. Uh, Fraser, <laughs> I'm so glad you're here. Uh, that was my tribute, because we miss him. We do. We do. Uh, Fraser has since taken a job at PC Gamer, uh, which is exciting yeah. times uh, for a friend. We, we wish him well there. Uh, hopefully that will mean he's on the podcast more uh, now that is he's no longer doing the insanely paced freelance grind he was. Uh, but who, who knows? But hopefully uh, we, can, we can get him on the show again real soon. Um, and we are also joined by our friend... Uh, See, this is a, I'm late. I didn't write one down. Uh, oh dear. Sometimes I, I will have you know. Sometimes I ad lib them, but this time <laughs> I've just got nothing. Uh, so you know, this time uh, we've got Games Beats uh, Commissar of Nihilism, Rowan Kaiser. I would say good afternoon or something, but I guess I can't after that afternoon. Uh, so today we're we're just going to be catching up a little bit. Uh, it's kind of a quiet week here at Three Moves Ahead, uh, just as everyone is dealing with holiday stuff, end of year uh, work stuff. Uh, we're sort of putting together some of our plans for the winter of wargaming, uh, but we're just going to sort of talk a little bit about sort of the strategy landscape right now, what we've been into, uh, and sort of the things we're going to be sort of forcing into other people's hands here uh, toward the end of the year for various discussions uh, around the podcast. Uh, so I guess, you know, Michael, well, we haven't heard from you in a little bit. Uh, what are you into these days? Uh, so on the strategy front, um, there wasn't much for me lately uh, to get into. Life circumstances meant that I really couldn't dig into anything too terribly deep. Uh, with the... Um, release of AI Wars, AI War 2 uh, Early Access, I actually went back to the original and dug into that for a little bit, which was always rewarding and fun. Um, but, um, you know, something we've talked about a little bit on the show, I think, in the past were some of the Zaktronics games. And uh, I think the last time I was actually doing something similar to this, where we just said, hey, what you doing? Uh, I was working on Shenzhen IO, which was their uh, kind of like micro PC programming game. Yeah. Which had a really great solitaire built into it. And uh, I since then, I've tried uh, Opus Magnum, which is one of their more recently released... Well, it's the last game that they released, uh, which kind of foregoes the sort of ultra-realism. I guess it goes more back towards... Um, what was the chemistry game? Uh, um, Space Chem? Space Chem. It, it, it kind of goes back to Space Chem, where it, it's getting more abstract rather than... You know, the last two games were literally programming in assembly language... And um, basically, uh, PLC programming. Uh, Opus Magnum is a is a puzzle game that sort of takes it takes the guise of saying that you're an alchemist in a very kind of steampunky alchemisty uh, version of England. And what I think makes this one sort of more sticky, probably for the common person, is that if you take the final outcome of one of the other games, like you have a you know a chunk of code that properly executes. Um, you basically get to see the variables change. There, there's not a lot of what I would say like tactile feedback. Whereas with Opus Magnum, what you're doing is uh, arranging a complex series of what are rotating arms, uh, sliding rails, uh, and various uh, 
faux chemical reactions um, in order to do things like change lead into gold and all that good stuff. At one point, you're making um, you know hair goop for somebody. In the early ones, you're making hair goop for somebody. You're you're a uh, a whiz kid alchemist. Uh, but when you create these machines, you create these uh, these processes. They're very satisfying to watch. They've got nice little sound effects. They rotate. They 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 have a, a quick export to uh, GIF, so you can uh, share or post them online. Oh, like, like built it. in. Yeah, like built that in. Is like so it, smart. Yeah. So at the end of it, you just hit you know go, and what it'll do is it'll create a perfect loop of your machine doing its full process. Um, and it's an optimization game, right? Which is is right up my alley. So at the end, you can optimize either for the amount of components used or the amount of space. Uh, that you've used up or the amount of cycles or steps that you've taken. And, you know, it's fun to optimize the best you can overall, but the real fun is to try and optimize for just one of those, which can lead to some pretty interesting and elaborate designs. And then, of course, you go on YouTube. So I I would come up with a solution and I'd be like, yeah, this is pretty good. And it gives you a statistical layout of where yours fell relative to everybody else who plays. Um, You're like, yeah, this is pretty good. I'm not really sure what else I could do beyond this. And then you go on YouTube and you see these just amazing contraptions that are, they're just extremely satisfying to watch. Um, So it, it has this sort of, very common mobile game glossy kind of presentation, mm-hmm. which is much more inviting, I think, than the command lines of the other games. Um, but I, I recommend it. It's a, it's a very interesting, uh, ugh, very interesting. It, it's a satisfying game, uh, and, and I've really enjoyed my time with it. Do you guys? Uh, am I alone in my my enjoyment of the Zachtronics games, or has anyone else dabbled in those? I mean, I've always been super intimidated by them. Like I think i would probably like i think uh opex magnum is the one that i would probably start with and it's kind of on my on my list yeah uh but i think the there's a couple things that tend to intimidate me um i think mostly it's and maybe you can talk me through this i have this terrible dread of building something that sort of half works but like some like basically i i live in dread that's going to turn into a q qa simulator right that like a major part of my experience playing the game is going to be trying to figure out the one thing i screwed up that might be like at a foundational level that is invisible to me on the screen and that i will just have to like unravel my work until i find it and then try to stitch it back together that the thought of that stresses me out yeah and that's like a a problem that's that's a work problem right like that's something you would expect to have at work where you're 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 doing some sort of technical project and it goes pear-shaped and you just know that digging into it some of the things that you did you're like well we'll come back to that later or or i'm sure i'll have time to, to patch that up um and then it turns out to to be your ultimate undoing um and and that's why i think some of the other games the previous few i mean they're sort of unabashed work simulators right you're doing yeah. oftentimes unglamorous tasks uh with 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 some sort of narrative behind it to drive it but um i think this one takes it a step far removed from work which I, at this point i have plenty of and the novelty yeah. of a work simulator just isn't really <clears throat> there for me but wizard alchemy does it for you uh wizard alchemy with uh you know spinning arms and ultimately satisfying outcomes is is more palatable to me than looking at more code in the evening and trying to debug it and figure out you know why this math isn't working 
Yeah, see, I, I, the humanities major and just hate science and math, so. Oh, yeah, okay. Well, that works, too. I played a little space camp, and it seemed neat, but not really my, you know, level of things. I've heard good things about Opus Magnum and has been on my Steam wish list, but I will probably play it for an hour and then be like, okay, that's a game for other people to love. I can uh, I can see there there's definitely probably about an hour in turning point where the puzzles change from yeah if you think of other puzzle games and I don't know why the first thing that comes to mind is Plants vs Zombies where you have this very linear and satisfying growth curve where you're always a little bit challenged but you can build upon the previous stuff and it's a satisfying progression towards the ultimate conclusion. And I would I, I I very distinctly remember the turning point where I'm like, you know what? I bet eighty percent of the people drop off right here. <laughs> and then and then sure enough in my cause it tells you first of all how you did relative to the rest of the world. But if you have someone on your Steam list who also has the game, it compares your results to theirs. And sure enough, at that point, I think there were five people that played it, and then four of them were just gone. Like they that was the end of it for them. They didn't go any further. Um and it's not it's it's kind of it can be kind of a bear but less of a bear than some of the other games. So if that's not a selling point, I don't know. <laughs> less I think bear. One less bear. the other question I have about that is um you know you're saying you're trying to optimize along different axes. Um yep. but I'm curious like are there other constraints you have to work under in this, right? Like I mean, is it you know what I mean? Like, I mean, like, do the puzzles have a structure to them, right? Like, do they, like, are there resources you have to conserve? Are there, you only get so many pieces of X, Y, or Z? Uh, no, and I think that's actually one of the better points of it is basically you, you have almost your entire toolkit right away. Um, and what gets more complicated is the solution that you have to get to. Um, and the only restriction on your resources are the, um, the initial, sort of uh, reagents that you have to combine into something else. But that's that's not really a restraint. That's just sort of part of the puzzle. But the actual, you can put in 500 rotating arms to have this ridiculous step-by-step uh, -step process, if you want to. There's really no limitation. Because as long as you get the right. result, you get to move on. Um, but when you see that line to the far right of you know your little Pareto plot, as far as like where you rank among everybody else, you're like... I bet I could do this with less arms. And then you go back and you figure out how you can compact things. And usually it's a usually it's a a balance between how compact. And if you make it compact, usually that means you're saving on components, um, but you have more steps. Uh, whereas you could have less steps if you add more components. So it's it's uh yeah, there's there's really no restrictions on what you can do. So you're really at your own mercy as far as how well it can be done. So I like it. I've I've had yeah. time to to dig into that. Um, the only other thing I'll talk about, which is, um, briefly, uh, which is gratuitous, gratuitously not strategy related is, um, there is a, uh, a roguelike on steam called caves of cud. I'm not sure if either of you are yep. familiar with it. Okay. You've maybe at least seen it or something like that. Yeah. For whatever reason, when I have had time, that has been really intriguing me with what I have to say is probably one of the most, there I go again, one of the, here, the most unique uh, game worlds that I've seen in terms of setting. Um, it's loosely based on a, a RPG setting called Gamma World from a long time ago, which oh I don't know God. if it, Yeah. So wow. it's like super far future, but still in the past because 
the future is just a layer cake of dead civilizations, one built on top of each other. Um, and the, the lore and the writing in the game are extremely well done. It has interesting gameplay that you can, uh, you, you can play it in a non-permadeath fashion. You can play it like a regular RPG, but it also dovetails with what I've been reading a lot, which was, uh, which is, um, uh, Gene Wolfe's, uh, Book of the New Sun, Mm -hmm. Earth of the New Sun, because there's a lot of overlap between the settings. And, um, I've been enjoying both of those immensely. I've, I've tried to... I, I'm determined to pierce Gene Wolfe's books. I have found them a bit challenging, but very satisfying, just because I think as far as fantasy goes, he's a very talented writer, like author. Like his prose um, is is pleasing to me as opposed to other fantasy books, which are just here's some stuff that happened. So the the two of those things have just really been kind of in front of me for a while, and I've, I've, I've really enjoyed my time with both of them. Is, uh, sorry, is the case of, Cud, Caves Cud? of Cud with Q Q U D. Okay, yeah. Uh, so is it? I tend to break out into a, like a cold sweat when I see like uh, old school ASCII roguelikey uh, yeah. aesthetics because uh-huh. usually that means like there's going to be a lot of um, I don't know. Like I, I'm lazy. Like there's just going to be some interface conventions that are going to like make playing it a little bit of a chore. Uh, there's there's going to be um, probably a forbidding degree of punishing difficulty that will get under my skin very very quickly. Like you know me, like a hoplite is about as like hardcore as I want to get. Uh, I bet. Oh man! So first of all, hoplite is an amazing game. Um, it, it is, is. A very. It is uh, as far as as the roguelike genre goes. I would, I think the term elegant applies to it in its game design and gameplay. Um, but this is like, um, see, the, I would call it interesting. Would you call it very interesting? <laughs> Probably. I would call it really unique. Really unique. <laughs> Some say the dungeon's a character. Um, the caves of cut is diametrically opposed <laughs> to uh, to uh, hoplite. That last one. Uh, he's really good actually the character is the dungeon yeah the uh yeah you couldn't get further apart than the two of them um i think caves of cut has a good interface um they're expanding to add like mouse support and things like that um but <laughs> look 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 in these circles that's a, that's a that's <laughs> oh, i love it when michael comes on the show you know what, Rob? No, you won't like Caves of Cud. We're done here. <laughs> yeah, I, I know Laura Bichette really likes that game, and she's like one of the top weird indie games with bizarre science fiction settings people. But yeah, I look at the interface and I say, I maybe should have done this 20 years ago. But I do see dialogue trees. Well, if you see the screenshot, you're looking at the screenshots on, on Steam. Yeah. Yeah, it's not really a dialogue tree per se that... It, it's just sort of a preset option sort okay. of uh yeah um th- there's many many systems involved with dialogue um there's uh rituals that you can do with people in order to enhance your reputation um there's faction reputation there's systems that's, upon that's systems called talking michael i'm just describing how it works <laughs> rowan um but it, it, as far as like the punishing difficulty it's definitely one of those games where there's no linear path that is, if you go the wrong way out of the starting village, you're just done, right? Yeah. Um, 
so you sort of there's a lot of trial and error. However, when you find some of these locations at the far end of the map um, that you maybe have heard about in or been referenced to in other places, they're they're very uh, comp- they're they're compellingly written, and the the characters and factions and sects within are are really well fleshed out. So I, I'd encourage anyone to check it out. I, it's pretty cheap on Steam. It's only ten bucks. Um, it's been in development for years and years and years and years uh, before they made it on Steam and sort of uh, polished it. it. It was ASCII for a really long time, like full ASCII, and then they added the tile set, which I think is 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 very well done. Yeah, it's definitely like it. Like at first, I thought it was just an ASCII game, but it's like one hundred percent not. But it does. It, it looks. It does an awful lot of suggesting of uh, of old ASCII graphics. It's very clever. Um, I don't know, Ron. What have you been up to lately? Hold on, I'm looking this up since the last time I saw it, it was definitely ASCII. Yeah, yeah they, no, it's rather handsome. Yeah, no, I think they have a a, a nice aesthetic. Um, the colors are nice. Uh, the graphics are good. They're starting to add. They're starting to add some animations to some of the the player actions, which will be cool. Um, you super hear that, Rowan animations. I, I sighed because anim- I, I, I know mouse support. <laughs> I know. I heard the hesitation. I should be nice. No, no, it's fine. I, I understand. Uh, but super well developed um, and well supported. They're very active. Feature Friday is always fun because you get to see what silly things they've added, which is probably as close to like Dwarf Fortress patch notes where you're like, oh, we fixed this obscure interaction where if you added this and this, you know, your face would fall off. Um, that type of stuff. Why would you fix that? Well, so there is actually <laughs> an achievement. Your, your face can get shorn off of your head and then you can put it on and wear it as a mask again. And that's an achievement. That's excellent. Yeah. But anyway, enough yeah. of my stuff. Tell me, Rowan, what awesome and unassailable hobbies have you had lately? <laughs> well, let's talk about Spite. Uh, because that's the, a, that's a the really good the feeling, the motivation. <laughs> that's a really good motivation. So, two months ago, um, I'm starting to feel better, make some life decisions that are, you know, generally positive, uh, get myself out of my non writing rut. So I'm talking with my therapist, and I say, like, okay, one of the things I want to do is I definitely want to write more. Because there was something I wrote that happened pretty easily and quickly. I forget exactly what it was, but, you know, that's how easily I wrote it. Um, And I was like, all right, I can successfully do this again. My brain is no longer totally broken, just mostly broken. Broken enough to be a writer. Um, So I say, all right, I am going to promise that I'm going to review a game. Uh Uh-oh. Well, that makes sense. I am a game reviewer. I have reviewed many games in the past. So I talk with my boss, Jason Wilson, over at GamesBeat, and I'm like, well, I think probably the game that I should try to aim for next is uh, this new RPG coming out. Caves of God? <laughs> uh, coming out. Oh, okay. Uh, Kaiser, Caves of Cud just got mouse support. I need pictures <laughs> of Caves of Cud right now. This is a headline, guys. <laughs> See, Jason probably actually would do that. Uh, yeah, he's he's the more obscure. He was he was really excited about that game that uh, took forever to get released. The the wizardry like on the Steam that I'm blanking on. That Troy was also super interested in. Um, I don't know. Probably some old dude game. Yeah, it's an old uh, dude game. It's like this this game that's been. An old school wizardry style throwback RPG that's been in development for like 
40 years. Okay, 20 years. Um, okay, it is a long time. And uh, Grimoire. Okay. Uh, Heralds of the Winged Exemplar. Yes. So this was a game that was like, this guy has been all around RPG forums for the last 20 years promising that he was making the game to end all games. Uh, it was, you know, a late So this 90s is a new style. game. Yes, and it just got released like a year ago. Uh, and Jason was all over this, alongside Troy. Uh, so that's that's a sort of that's a sort of interest level that we're talking about there. But anyway, I say, all right, there's this new RPG coming out that's two months ago. Uh, I previewed it. Um, actually, went to two different preview events, but only wrote it up once. But it's a uh, Pathfinder Cake Baker, and it's in the style of you know the Baldur's Gate things, which are not yeah. my favorite, as we've discussed on this show. Uh, but you know, when you have your isometric RPG fix that you got to get, then uh, there there are choices out there. I also played Pillars of Eternity two a lot more after we did that show, and I really liked it, possibly because combat was ridiculously easy. Yeah. Um, but uh, that was fantastic. It's one of my top games of the year. So uh, yeah, I got excited about Pathfinder King Miker. It's got a strategic layer. Uh, who could who could fail to be excited by that? Um, so I decided to review it and first bad sign, uh, they don't send out codes until the day of release. Mm. Though that's, uh, that is a bad sign sometimes, but also it can be a, well, for a game of that size, I suppose it's a bad sign for a game of that size. And especially one that it's an RPG. Usually they're like, they want to give that to you in advance. So you have a little bit of time so you can like say something around release. Yeah. Um, and I'd previewed it, or I'd gone to a preview event like a month or two before, and it seemed, you know, pretty competently polished. Okay. Uh, so then, you know, that's that's one warning flag, and then I get it, I start playing it, and there's some really neat stuff going on in the beginning where, like, you have, like, seven characters who are can join your party, and based on the decisions you make in the tutorial zone, like, it's a it's D&D based, it's Pathfinder, uh, like, if you make a lawful decision at one point, then this character will join your party at the start. Or if you make a, a evil decision, then another character will join. And, you know, it yeah. fills with that. It makes it seem like your, your D&D actions have consequences. So that's all really neat. I get, get excited, go get into the game proper, and I get this quest. Like, the first side quest that you get, the alchemist at your first home base says, hey, I need you to go collect some berries from a spider cave. Uh, and that's all... Well and good, right? Yeah. Everyone goes and kills spiders. Yeah, and, that's that's a standard level one quest. Yeah, yeah, and you know the the way that RPGs do their quest systems, uh, they're basically the lens through which the game is viewed, right? Yeah. Uh, how the how you interact with the quests is how you interact with the game. So an early game quest is teaching you something. Um, Especially a side quest. It's saying, here is, here is a part of the game that we want you to look at. Even if it's just, here's the existence of a side quest. Yeah. Um, so I go to the spider cave, and there's a giant spider there, and there's something called a spider swarm. So I start a fight, and the, spider, the giant spider you know, fights, bites one of my party members, but I kill it. And then the spider swarm is just sitting there, constantly attacking. Everything that my characters do doesn't land on the spider swarm, and it... You know, over the course of ten minutes of slowly attacking, it kills them all. What? And I'm like, I oh. so I just want to point out that that is fairly accurate to D and D, and especially Pathfinder settings where swarms are actually super tricky to deal with. 
Right. But here's the thing. This is an adaptation of one of the most famous Pathfinder campaigns. Like, the Kingmaker thing is supposedly super popular. They have, like, these 15 super campaigns that are, yeah. have, like, eight different books, that, and you go through them, like, over the course of two years with your party or whatever. Yeah. But these involve having a dungeon master. A dungeon master is the sort of person who might tell you, this obviously isn't working for dealing with a spider swarm. Maybe you should try something else. Could you escape? I, I nope. wouldn't tell them that, no. You wouldn't, you wouldn't, if you're a if all of your adventurers just walked into their first battle or their first quest and ran into something that would murder them no matter what, you wouldn't mention anything as to why that might be. It's called tough love, Rowan. And well, that's how some games are run. This is uh, Rowan. Like Michael is the sort of dude who's like, really, you know, level two characters are like in a normal world would be like legendary heroes in themselves. It's a real achievement to get to level two. Uh, and that's how I run my campaigns. Plus, there's like four of them, so you know you got to scale it. Yeah. So, uh, so you're packed to death by a bunch of baby spiders. Pretty much, yes. So I like go and do the other parts of the main quest, all the other side quests. I go and find a mage to join my party because I figure there's magic would probably do it. I come back, magic doesn't do it. Uh, so I keep, I eventually like go online and look it up, and it's like. Oh, you have to use acid bombs or torches in order to kill these things. Yeah. So I, I equip the torches that I have. And Wait, what were you having your mage do? Cast acid splash? Like, they don't have really good level one spells in Pathfinder. But acid splash would work, right? Supposedly, but I guess I missed every time. Eh, level one mage. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah, so I wrote this piece on Games Beat complaining about, you know, like, this is not the only example, but this is by far the worst example of this just, like, total lack of having any kind of sympathetic dungeon master and just, like, following the rules regardless of where that takes you. Um, I titled it P Pathfinder Kingmaker as Goddamn Infuriating. Uh, so that was... <laughs> That was that was really auspicious. Yeah. And uh like shortly after I published that, someone tells me like I get I eventually like, you know, the torches work, I get to the next phase of the game and run into a timed quest with an enemy that I cannot defeat because she's like constantly casting hold person on my entire party and I have no idea how to stop her. Uh, and just like figuring out all of these horrible things that are destroying me at every turn is you know, really infuriating. So, but someone convinced me or said that they re-rolled re a new character and uh, that was, you know, had been effective. And so I tried that and I started working my way through it again. And uh, as I was doing that, I was discovered that they had patched it so that there is now a loading screen that tells you that torches and bombs kill swarms. When you get the quest from the initial... Uh, the alchemist dude, he gives you acid bombs and says, you're going to need these. And there's a tutorial that pops up when you get to the spider swarm cave <laughs> that says, here's how you kill swarms. So this is, this is the sort of thing that I've been playing this game at is like, I was playing it and it would be patching at the level that I was playing at. Oh my like, lord. Every time I would log in, like there would be a new set of like bug fixes. You. Like yeah. they're, they're that's like they're that's the very Truman Show esque, where it's like <laughs> yeah. we're really just watching Rowan. Um, and eventually, like, so I mentioned, there's a strategic layer on this. It's the you, the 
story of it is that like there's this untamed land that you are basically given the keys to if you manage to kill the bandits who are uh, in charge of it. And like, oh, like you the ending de- of Far and Away. Uh, you develop the land over the course of the game and become a king or queen. In the case of the fifth character that I rolled is is a woman this time. Um, and so- uh, like so, over the course of it, you're building it up, and there's a strategic layer where your party members like become the advisors for your realm, and you like send them out to go resolve events. Yeah. So, and these events are sometimes related to the plot, and sometimes they're just random. So at that point, it's turning into King of Dragon Pass. It sort of is, although unlike King of Dragon Pass, it's it actually tells you like what your chances of having a good thing happen are. Um, so like. There'll be an event that says, you know, barbarians are invading your lands, you need to do something, and you can send one of your advisors, like your military advisor or your your warden, out to go and deal with them. And they each have, uh, like, specific skills based on how you have built up your kingdom and how you have built up them, like a specific rating of, like, a plus five. And that plus five is attached to a 20-sided dice roll, and it says what the roll is that you need to uh succeed in this but it only actually makes the roll at the end of whatever 28 days it is and then at that point it decides to fuck you over or not and it can really fuck you over a ton uh i had one game that i just like the the event where there's an event where a bunch of monsters are constantly invading your lands like the people in your are turning the people in your lands are suddenly turning into monsters and uh yeah i wasn't on top of my game there, and it just ended. Uh, you can switch the kingdom management to like not have anything happen there, and then you can't lose, but then you're missing out on this strategic layer of the game. Um, so that was like my third restart of the game. Um, and then the other thing that has had me playing basically just this for the last two months is uh, that it's just goddamn massive. Like, they're doing the whole damn Pathfinder campaign, which is like eight D and D source books, uh, and like you go from level one to level twenty across the course of like eight different mini campaigns, and it just never ends. Like it's I'm at level twelve weird. or thirteen. The more you talk, the more you're selling me on this. Is the problem? It, it's they've patched a lot of the stuff that's really fucking annoying out. They have also, there's something oddly appealing about the way that the strategic layer, even though it's really bare bones, like, it just rolls a couple dice and some numbers go up, and then maybe you can get some better things out of those numbers. Um, it's There's a really appealing way that, like, that feeds into how you do the, you know, regular RPG part of the game. Um, like you go and do all the quests in a certain area of the land, then you go to your back to your throne room, grab one of your advisors, and take two weeks to like automatically bring that part of the land into your kingdom. Then you go and build up the town there that you now have, and like all these things are, uh, they sort of reinforce what you're doing in the way that something like Dragon Age Inquisition, which is probably the closest to this, kind of failed at. Um, because that always felt like it was taking away from what you were wanting to do, where this game feels like it's it's feeding back into the whole RPG aspect. And I wish that 
this game had been out when we did our, our show on State of Decay and the, the sort of strategic layers that get added because it's really awful and really appealing at the same time. And, like, I'm frustrated that I'm not playing anything else and I am playing it primarily out of spite at this point. Like, I could do the review and just say I haven't finished the game and I may yet do that. I hit another Kingdom Destruction point. Um that uh, is going to make me reload and has lost, like, the last day or so of progress. Uh, but, like, I'm not stopping. Like, I've, there's still something in here that's working for me. Um, the the idea of having the kingdom sort of be the D&D-style alignment chart and reinforce the choices that you make in the game and then those give you the new choices at a strategic layer is a thing that it tries to do. So, yeah, it's... I am doing it out of spite, but I do kind of like it. And, you know, in another year when they finally patched everything, it's probably going to be a really good game. But it's just too fucking big. Like, what, what's an average? What do you think an average playthrough is? I would guess, like, a reasonably fast playthrough is probably around 80 hours. Mm, that's beefy. Yeah. Um, you could probably, like, crit path it in, like, 40 or so, mm-hmm. um, especially if you know how to manipulate the D&D rules. Um, and you, like, roll the characters that are going to do the best. Like, yeah. for, rangers are basically god mode. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that's a normal thing in Pathfinder, but, yeah, they, you know, do... Like, all of my characters are doing, like, 10 damage when they hit an enemy, and then my ranger is doing crits for 70 damage. Like, yeah, it's it's really... Uh, doesn't seem balanced, but maybe it is at some point. Anyway, uh, yeah, I have been playing this and not playing any of the, like, 16 expansions for Paradox games that I love that have come out in the last uh, two months. God help me. There have been a lot, and there's probably more coming. Probably safe to say. There's one more coming in three weeks. Ron, uh, according that, to Steam, you are you are playing Pathfinder right now? <laughs> yes, I am playing Pathfinder right now. I'm sorting my inventory. No, it's it's just all tabbed out. Did you did you play? Have you played Pathfinder like you know the the, the RPG game pen like, and paper? I, a, a session or two. Okay. Like I and like I've played uh, D and D three and three point five uh, video games. Okay. So um, I it's it's reasonably familiar to me, but not to the point where I know exactly what spider swarms do. Yeah. When we when I was playing and, and running games, uh, Pathfinder was our, our our game of choice as the premier version of D and D, three point five and Pathfinder is like the pinnacle, and then yeah, there's all the other stuff. Though I never played anything version five. Did you did you do Kingmaker? No, we were doing um, we were doing one of the other uh, kind of pre pre made campaigns, and now it's been so long I can't even remember what it was, but. It was one of the larger modules that had sort of uh, yeah. you know pre-made uh, uh, you know character pawns and all that good stuff. Lots of good support, very well fleshed out, almost too fleshed out at some points, but um, they make really good good product. Yeah, uh, that, that's a thing that you know I can see here is that like this is a first-time game company called Owlcat. They're in Russia. Uh, they're based. They're uh, a bunch of like Larian people or like ah. they used to contract with larian i'm not sure exactly what it was but uh like to pick 
a hundreds of hours RPG based on like a very seriously beloved license as your first game is pretty ambitious and it shows in ways that are appealing and infuriating at the same time. Hmm. Yeah, trying to take on all of that. I had no idea that that campaign was like the definitive Pathfinder campaign. Yeah, like I mean, when they were telling me about it at like the preview events, they were saying that. But since I have been tweeting various complaints and praise for it, some people have said like, "Yeah, we tried to do that one, and then we switched over to like the heist one, and that was way more fun." Um, so I don't know if it's entirely considered the definitive ones, but it's definitely one of the most famous of their their prestige or campaigns or whatever. Did Did you get a lot of uh, get good feedback on your uh, review? Uh, Gamesbeat doesn't have comments, so uh, oh, everyone okay. come work for Gamesbeat. Right. Um, I did get a couple thing tweets or two, but uh, you know, very obviously from people that I wanted to ignore. Right, Rob, have you been playing either anything that has recently added mouse support, or will take roughly eighty to hundred hours to finish? Uh boy, I mean, back on that XCOM. XCOM, we are still working our way through uh, our our playthrough. Uh, awesome, and I. No, it's um. I mean, probably right now, the thing that I'm dragging myself through is Red Dead Redemption. Um, ah. But I, what's that? Uh, it's <laughs> uh, so you ever seen a western? I played The Witcher. Does that count? Uh, kind of. This is sort of like if someone who'd seen who'd seen a western and played The Witcher made a game. Uh, so yeah, wow. I think it counts. No, that I, seems like, neat. It's I. I'm still working through my feelings uh, about it. I, I think it is a. I, I'm not really enjoying playing the game, uh, but there are it, there are moments like it, it. It has that problem of there are some very high highs in that game, but like sort of the meat, the the sort of average of the experience is pretty flat. Uh, but I keep like chasing those highs a little bit and like waiting for the next cool set piece. No, I think for me the issue I'm having a lot lately is. The stuff I am enjoying playing the most is just old as hell. Uh, like, <laughs> like I, I am really into Steel Division uh, right now, and which is like fourteen months, but yeah, but in in game time, you know what I mean. Like, it's just yeah. it's not something people want to hear me talk about right now. But here, too bad you're going to hear me talk about it. Um, I think I had sort of when I first played Steel Division. I got really pig-headed about mastering the solo version of that game. And you and Fraser even warned me when we were on the show that, like, it's a very different game when you're playing it with people, that it sort of shows itself to its best effect. Yeah. When you are on a team and people can, like, sort of specialize a little bit and have sort of overlapping roles. And I was like, nah, it's an RTS. RTSs, at, you know, at in their heart of hearts are serious games of 1v1 skill um i don't know who like i don't know why i think that way because i'm I'm shit at rts's basically so i don't know why i would sort of lock on to that but i you're gonna be a starcraft 2 pro one day right hey uh it's you know more achievable than ever uh now that the (laughs) now the korean stranglehold uh on on blizzcon titles has been has finally been broken uh no it's it's been sort of revelatory going back to it uh, in the context of playing it with some uh, 3MA community members, uh, playing it with you, in that 
it really does become a completely different and more entertaining experience when you are playing it as a semi-cooperative experience. Uh, when it's not just when it's not just you sort of like trying to manage every single engagement all at once, but instead it's you and a teammate or teammates trying to figure out how to divvy up a map, right? How to, you know, who is better equipped to deal with this sudden threat uh, from enemy aircraft uh, or an onslaught of, of heavy tanks. And I think one of the other reasons for this is it's very easy to build a mediocre army in Steel Division because this is the other part of it is like, Steel Division is very much a game about having a kind of custom army uh, that has a different power curve based on the three phases of each match. Uh, and then each division you can choose has, in a lot of cases, some really substantial differences in equipment that's on offer and how much of it you can deploy. Um, all of which means that if you've got a teammate, chances are you have areas where you're going to be complementary. Uh, areas where you'll be weak, but somebody else will have something cool that can help out in that in that situation. And if you're trying to solo it, you get into a match and you run into a problem that like you're just not really set up to handle. You're kind of screwed. You just have to figure out how to sort of work around that, and hopefully, like it won't become catastrophic while you try to limp to the end of the match. But in multiplayer, it's very much the case that like look. You know, you don't have a good tank destroyer, but somebody probably does. You know, your 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 uh, you know, your anti-aircraft guns are, are too short range, and they don't have what it takes to knock down these uh, fighter bombers. But uh, somebody else has a squadron of interceptors available that they can send, and that is a that changes things up uh, quite a bit, and it sort of helps you get a handle on the design a little better. And also, it's just it's just more fun. It's it just is a hell of a lot more fun to be sitting there being like, uh, you know. All right, we're going to start this push on the central crossroads. You know, can you use? The, can you bring up the rocket artillery? Uh, that's just a, that's just a fun experience, and I have kind of discovered a bottomless appetite for it. Uh, I have started uh, in down in slow times at work uh, or on weekend mornings while I'm waiting for my coffee to brew. I will start just designing new divisions, and I am finding that bizarrely fun. And, uh, yeah, I guess, you know, I'm leaving it all behind. I'm, be I'm going to become a pro Steel Division player. <laughs> That's a lucrative scene. Uh, yeah, it, it, it's a really complicated game, or maybe not necessarily complicated, but it's a really attention-intensive game. Yes. Where if there are, like, six or eight different things that you have to be paying attention to, and if you aren't paying attention to one of them in a 1v1 setting you're dead it's gone uh and that's really tough but if you are in a multi commander setting it doesn't have to be with people like the way that i would play uh by myself would be like a 3v3 with two ais on my team and two ais on the enemy team or three ais on the enemy team and uh like 
then you have if you have forgotten to get your anti-air out there you have a teammate who can probably help you until you do but if you have forgotten that for you know five minutes as a single player then your entire army just gets wiped out by yes you know a single airplane and uh that feels bad so yeah it's it's way more forgiving with uh that sort of that sort of thing and i think it's a really appealing game so yeah i think the more i've been playing it now i'm starting to realize just all the things about its design that i really do enjoy and appreciate like the phase structure is making more sense to me now and like i really appreciate how that creates these cool dynamics where the different factions will have different power curves depending on how they're built um and so you can like you can have these really cool situations where somebody is set up for a really strong mid game but they are a complete weak link uh in in the a phase uh when you know most vehicles and weapons are pretty light or pretty early war um and there's some divisions that actually open pretty strong uh, in that phase, but usually that means that there's probably going to be um, a phase where they begin to struggle in in the in the combat. And it's really fun seeing how that all interacts. The way that the game has these completely different dynamics, depending how the two, uh, you know, how the different sides are matched up, and the timing uh, involved in when they get access to their best goodies. Um, and then I also just really love the structure of it. The, the fact that we've been playing a lot of things, the conquest mode where you just, the more of the map you control, the more, the more points you get, uh, the, the better yeah. you're doing. Yeah. Um, that's the default mode too. Yeah. I mean, it's, and it's a lot better than destruction. Uh, I think cause in, in destruction, if you just sort of sit back and, uh, turtle up, you know, defender's advantage will often give you a nice edge uh, as the enemy attacks into your defenses, and it doesn't matter that you've given up a bunch of the map. But in conquest mode, it really is cool how it feels like, even if it's the same map, you never know where the main battle is going to end up unfolding. Like, you might play, say, Mariglis, and in one version of that, everything depends on the street fighting in the central, uh, you know, in, in the central town. And the forests around it, and becomes this like really brutal infantry and uh, artillery duel. But you might also play a version of that match where there's like, you know, a massive like pitched tank battle happening in the farm fields east of town, right? And like it's like a mini Kursk is unfolding and things are pretty quiet in the town actually. And you never know how that's going to to what that dynamic is going to be, but it does make it feel very um very satisfyingly wargamey, uh I would say. You know, cuz suddenly like you know, without the game giving you like magic hills, you know, objectives that you have to take, you'll just realize like oh shit, like I got a real problem over there. And the linchpin of it is this one grove of trees uh, that I need to I need to drive the enemy spotters out of that grove of trees, and that can like that can turn into this whole like first day of Gettysburg thing where you're like okay clearly there's a spotter and a mortar company back there they're wreaking too much havoc I'm gonna go brush them out of there, and your force gets stopped unexpectedly by strong resistance. And then you're like, okay, I'll send a little bit more. And then suddenly the entire game 
has sort of switched focus into what was originally just like a skirmish. Uh, suddenly, you know, you are burning that forest to the ground and sending in tiger tanks or something. Uh, and that's that's a cool dynamic that I, I don't know too many games that have replicated. I, like like I talked about when it came out, it, it also feels like a metaphor for like World War II at a grand scale. Like the combined arms things that you're thinking about doing are also the sorts of combined arms things that you're doing in like a Hearts of Iron. Um, yeah. Which is, it? it's like a game as a metaphor for tactics, and I, that's, it's just really clever. Yeah, I, um, I've completely uh, fallen sort of back in love with it, which has also made me, um, I'm really curious now about what the second game is going to be like. Because, you know, A, Eastern Front, uh, I can see them making a really good game uh, out of that, though I think. The train is very different. Uh, I'm curious how they're going to communicate that. I think, by and large, their solution to Normandy was to pretend it's basically flat as a pancake. Uh, there's there's a few hills, but like predominantly, it's a game about uh, you know tree lines and impassable hedgerows, sort of cutting up the map uh, in some weird ways. I'm curious what their view of the Eastern Front is going to be, besides just like a palette swap. But the uh, thing that really caught my eye and uh, you know, I shared it with you all in the chat, but did you see the plans they're sketching out for the uh, for the campaign, the dynamic campaign? They are really ambitious, right? Yeah, this is... Uh, trying to chase that dragon of getting the strategic layer and the tactical layer actually fitting together so that, like, you can play either on their own or... Uh, they feed together directly where every strategic move you take goes into a specific, yeah. you know, steel division level battle. And uh, yeah, that's that's the sort of thing that you dream about and very rarely has ever actually worked. So, yeah, let's let's find out. Yeah, I, I, I think they came closer with um, like Wargame Airland Battle, I think, had a decent campaign. And now I didn't play like apparently like if you do spend enough time in that campaign, you do start to see the seams a little bit more. Uh, and Wargame Red Dragon definitely had problems open up uh, with their campaign. But the solution here seems to offer a lot more variety and a lot more... Um, the way that you'll be like selecting different battalions to send into combat uh, against an enemy in the strategic layer uh, will also dictate what kind of units are available for draft for the battle itself, which I think can... That seems like a really cool idea, right? Where, like, if you sort of have a converging attack uh, with, like, a mechanized division and a, you know, battered panzer division, uh, you'll get a unit menu that sort of roughly tracks with that. Uh, but different, if you sort of miss if you sort of have a misalignment of forces uh and you don't sync things up quite right you might end up fighting the better part of a battle with a recon battalion and uh you know who knows some some second rate infantry uh which i think is which a is cool dynamic and very very uh appropriate for the eastern front in 1944 yeah yeah uh, so I'm I'm very curious uh, what that what that's going to be like. I'm very I'm very hopeful, uh, especially because I think Steel Division 
in a weird way, I like Steel Division to start climbing the charts uh, for me in in my list of like favorite Eugen games, and uh, you know I feel like I slept on it a little bit when it came out. So pretty keen to us uh, to see Steel Division too. Also, you were on that show, so it's it's good to announce to the world that you were sleeping on it while you were on the show. Well, I wasn't very good at it, and I felt that was a problem. <laughs> And not my problem, the game's problem. Uh, no, but also, like, I just hadn't... We were playing it all sort of pre-release. Uh, there's just yeah, so much right. more to it now. Like, there are, like, the other thing was that at release, I felt like there were a lot of... There were a lot of constraints on the units you could build uh, that left me with just armies I didn't feel totally comfortable with. Um you know, the game had a commitment to you fielding some truly garbage uh, German formations, for instance. And now, sort of in its final form, uh, you got access to basically anything you might want. Um, which, in, in my case, is apparently, uh, you know, a SS Panzer Division with nothing but King Tigers. Uh, which, <laughs> Of course it is. Yeah, well, you know, it seemed like a winning strategy at the time, uh, Rowan. Uh, but you know, the problem with those King Tigers is they're slow. And, uh, I'll tell you if that match, if that match had gone on an extra 40, 45 minutes, <laughs> I think we would have had it in the bag. Meanwhile, my infantry division is grounded to dust across the entire center of the map. Uh, See, you were, is... you were that anvil and I had another <laughs> anvil that I was pushing across the map and we were going to get them between our two anvils. And uh, it was a beautiful plan. Um, yeah, I, I don't, I don't blame myself really. Uh, yeah. Is it, well, the way I like to play it is as the infantry divisions, and the original one that we did the show on had the Scottish division, mm -hmm. which was really, really good for turning everything into World War One, which is apparently how I want to play that. So yeah, I guess that's how I got into it earlier. Oh my than god. You. Modders, please. I, I want the World War One version of Steel Division because that's the thing. I think that system would work yeah. for a World War One game. I think this is the only RTS where I've looked at and I've been like, yeah, this is basically World War One if you need to. Yeah, and, you know that's that's an appropriate strategic or tactical decision. Sometimes is when you have your various divisions, you look at. You know, the, the other one that I like to play is the Free French, which is super infantry heavy and super phase A heavy. So basically what they do is they push forward in waves and, like, at the very beginning, take as much as they can and then slowly get ground down. So you get that combined with, you know, a heavy tank division that will, at the by the third phase, just suddenly be dominant, and that's a really good thing. So, yeah, there's... Uh, there's a lot of neat, neat interactions going on there. See, Mike, you got to come in with the, with us on this, Michael. It, uh, yeah, I love it. And, this could be your uh, opus magnum. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I for whatever reason, and I'm I'm willing to admit that it's probably more that more me than the games. Like I I bounced off like um you know a war game that like the Red Dragon and uh, European Escalation. They never. Um, they just didn't grab me like some of the other other war games that I've played. Yeah, uh, Steel Division I think does a way better job of being like instantly appealing. It yeah. looks, it looks good, and the World War II setting has a lot more infantry, which 
like just feels good to move around on the map in a way that yeah. uh, war game didn't have when i played it a little bit i didn't play a ton of it so yeah it, uh and it does feel like when you bring it together you really do feel like you're orchestrating a beautiful like combined arms destruction symphony um hmm. like the the times you actually do like sync up a perfectly like you know perfect a perfectly organized in place like saturation barrage followed by like armored vehicles jumping forward and like follow oh it's it's so good uh most of the time of course it all ends in tears but when you do when you do nail it uh it's it's pretty great um so yeah i think uh you know sorry Ron. i mean speaking of the future we just got some news today if you want to talk about that oh uh the the future of civilization the yeah. future that may never come if we don't change our ways. <laughs> Civ six going to going to change the discourse. Uh, yeah, so we they were they started teasing with a uh, with a stream of a, a of a city uh, of a city skyline uh, sort of being over uh, being being uh, sort of menaced by a gathering cloud of of storms. Uh, turns out to be a teaser for an expansion called Gathering Storm. <laughs> which is coming uh in early 2019 and i guess the the big headline change here is that they're sort of trying to bring climate change back into civ which is funny cuz like it's weird to think about in civilization 2 pollution and environmental catastrophe were baked into the game and were pretty much i think inevitable in like the industrial era like that game without it being a controversial thing at all said like, Hey, uh, so this part of the game, uh, the environment starts getting pretty fucked up and, uh, sea levels are going to rise and the map is going to change. And you just sort of dealt with that. Planes will turn into deserts. Yeah. That's just going to happen. Yeah. Was it Civ three where it ended up just being like this pollution overlay on each tile that you just sort of had to send guys around to scrub out. Like that was the extent of the, that was in Yeah. I think, Two had the pollution, and I think Civ Three just had the pollution. It didn't have the whole uh, global warming aspect to it, and oh. then four and five had nothing, and six had nothing until now. Yeah, see, I'm one of those odd number Civ guys, so I never really got into two. I was a three and five. Mm. So you only play the bad ones, okay? Oh. Apparently. So right. <laughs> yeah, um, this one's going to be try like. Obviously, we we don't know much yet. Uh, I'm very curious what their sort of take on this is going to be. Uh, you know, pushed to its limits, there was that sort of famous uh, Reddit thread about sort of the endless game of Civ Two, yeah, uh, where like there were three like <laughs> three like fascist superpowers uh, all battling over what remained of the Earth and nuking each other and uh, constantly just trying to clean up pollution from the nuclear war and uh, vanished coastline. Um, and that was sort of where, if you let Civ 2 run long enough, that is where it saw the world going. Uh, or at least that was one of the things it saw as definitely being probable, uh, you know, in a long enough timeline. And I am not sure that sort of dour vision squares with... And I think it was a vision, right? Because, like, for Axis, then the, the next thing they make is Alpha Centauri, which is basically doubling down on that entire theme of maybe our progress is setting us up for a really gruesome fall and maybe technology is not going to save you. 
Um, so I think at that point, like Firaxis does kind of have a sense of historical destiny and vision. Uh, and at some point after that, it, it kind of gets lost. And so I'm, cu- I'm curious to see if that vision comes back. Because one of the other things they're, they're posing here is that, uh, so you're going to get like meteorological change. Uh, there's going to be natural disasters. Um, Black death. Really? Yeah. yeah. I didn't notice that. But. Oh, shit. You're right. Okay. That, oh, that's going to be a scenario at least. Uh, but maybe it's going to happen in your... I just remember seeing the bullet point, Black Death. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, maybe pandemics as, as well. Uh, but the other thing they're sort of promising is there's ways to mitigate it, right? There's advances in, you know, carbon-free technologies, things like that. Uh, probably there's going to be some, uh, you know green technology that you can unlock that will that will be very powerful uh and i am sort of curious where they come down with all this um because i think you know we talked a little bit about this on the city skyline show uh the solution they adopt in city skylines is to basically say that green like magical green technologies will save us uh that you know there's going to be a you can just build a, a solar power plant um it's small. It produces tons of power. It's fine. Uh, need geopower? Uh, just put a geothermal plant anywhere. Anywhere is good. Uh, it'll. It's like a. It's like a nuclear power plant, but but totally green. And that doesn't really. That doesn't really grasp the scale of the challenge or catastrophe that I, I think we're staring down the barrel of. And I'm curious if Civ is built to do that. Like six months ago, there was an article that came out about how uh several of the like paris climate accord projections were based off this idea that we would have carbon capture technology where we could just basically put the bad gas in caves and it would go away and like the article came out saying that basically this technology was always merely an idea and the people who had the idea never were anywhere near making it and never like said they were going to be near making it and it just got baked into all of the projections for how we get out of this without having to change anything drastic about society um and that feels like the direction that Sam has gone in the last couple installments is you know we we will get out of this through human ingenuity and not... It, it's very triumphalist. And this goes along with the way that it's, it's become about the end game. It's about your win condition. And, you know, this, this is adding a new win condition. It's bringing the diplomatic victory back. Um, so, yeah, I'm, I'm concerned that it's going to be pretty toothless along those lines. On the other hand, um, back when Civ Six was released, I said this game desperately needs two expansions... It needs a revolution-centered expansion, which we got, and it needs a climate change or environmentalism-centered expansion, which we're getting. Uh, so, like, well, especially the relation, the way your sieve is so dependent now on the land and right. what is around you. Like, this game is actually mechanically better positioned, probably, than any other sieve to tackle things like what happens when the world starts changing around your cities. Right, and and it's also about um it's it's not only about playing the map but it's also feels like a city builder because of that mm-hmm. and in that way it's like sort of the best feeling games of civ 6 that i have played are the ones where i'm just kind of picking out the cities and building them peacefully um like i normally hate island maps but they're great in civ 6 uh 
because you get an island for each city and you get to you know build it up in a nice cute little way um and uh what that sort of game needs is pushback. What you need is, you know, a paradox style thing where, all right, you've gotten a little too successful. Here's the thing that your success is causing. If you are cutting down all your forests in order to rush a wonder, in order to do really well in the early game, the mid game should have some pushback where, you know, you get flooding because of that. And I don't know if that's exactly how this expansion is going to work. They've talked about things like that, but that's, that's the example that I want in my head. Yeah. Um, and so I'm really interested to see if this, if the game actually starts making your success actually be an issue, because the the last expansion helped with that. It didn't fix it entirely, but it definitely uh, changed things in a way that made it more interesting. So continuing on that path is something I'm looking forward to. I just am not certain about whether Firaxis's recent strategic philosophy can actually have them like go uh, in interesting fully depressing and horrific ways because that's obviously what we need speaking of depressing i'm curious about the kind of pushback they'll get um from video game fans who are usually always um reasonable and level-headed like the, the sad truth is that saying things like climate change like the statement climate change and using it and sort of some of the prescriptive solutions to what could make the world ostensibly quote unquote better is effectively making a statement and you can't make a statement about these things without completely pissing off a large group of people who will take great umbrage at the implication that, you know, there's sort of a way to fix these things. Um, and that, you know, this sort of forward looking in, you know, care of the environment stuff, like, like, am I wrong? Do you, I, I feel like there's going to be people who are just riled about this for the sake of being upset about sort of the implied message with oh. a capital M. Yeah, but like they're going to be that way no matter what. Yeah. Oh, all right. Well, like Troy, I think pointed out that they ha- they're adding <laughs> I thought, Eleanor. I thought you were going to say like Troy. <laughs> yeah, Troy will be mad at something. Uh, Troy pointed out that they're adding like Eleanor of Aquitaine to be an English and a French ruler. You can like switch her at the starting screen or whatever, I guess. Yeah. And like this means that neither England or France still has a man as their one of potential leader heads, and people are going to be mad at that. And Sure, people are going to be bad at that. Fuck them. Like that's that's just the noise, the background God noise of existing in video games these days. Uh, there are bad fans, and sometimes they're going to start a firestorm, and sometimes they're going to complain on Reddit for three years and never do anything. Yeah, and we and probably you don't want to amplify them too much, right? Like, I mean, the the, the other thing that you know probably shouldn't be underestimated is here is these things are probably less controversial than they're made to appear like it is the zealousness and like general shabbiness of bad actors who i think makes make the a lot of these things appear really toxic and and heated i am not entirely sure like especially with like a civ game i'm 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 just not sure uh you know how much how much fire will really uh exist be behind all that smoke especially because i mean like honestly we are starting to have enough signs of environmental stress and uh you know disaster that i think these ideas and confronting them is rapidly becoming less controversial um which is depressing it had to play out this way, but 
uh it, it I, I do i do suspect that like you know at a certain point minds will be changed by the evidence in their own eyes but we're, we're seeing a lot a lot of that evidence now firsthand uh so i i i i know i don't think this feels hypothetical uh in the way that maybe it did back when civ 2 uh civ 2 came out um i wish that the culture and the discourse hadn't changed between those when these two games have come out like if if it was sort of a just accepted fact that things were headed that way in civ 2 and nobody really commented on it uh would have been healthier we'd sort of stayed in that place rather than sort of retreating into a sort of techno utopianism is this is, was it really is it just me or is it really long between these expansions relative to the pace from the other games i or don't think this... it's it's i don't think it's necessarily long between the expansion this will be like a year almost exactly i think since yeah. the last one but it's been a long time without any kind of notice yeah uh like they with Civ Five, they were pretty consistent, and shortly after release of Civ Six, they were pretty consistent about here's a little thingy, here's a little thingy, you know, here's some Babylonians, here are the Nubians for in Civ Six, and uh, uh, with this, it's just expansion, wait, expansion. So yeah, it's definitely felt like it's been longer than it actually has been. You know what it is? It's it's those bastards at Paradox that have us trained that you know <laughs> that, that, if it's yeah. a month that ends in Y, there's going to be an expansion. I was thinking about that just in general about like, you know, it's been tougher for me to find time to get like I, I've had a harder time getting excited about a lot of new strategy games, and that's only partially due to the fact they're all uh, Warhammer games. Um, <laughs> but I, I think the other issue of it is that now like. Without us really talking too much about it, the live game model came to strategy games in a lot of ways, and uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I like. I think one reason that Civ, that that Civ feels like it's sort of been on ice so long is that we've we have been conditioned, and we live in a sort of uh, strategy media ecosystem that, that sort of reinforces this idea that stuff is happening all the time. There's always new things. There's always a new patch coming. There are always like profound systemic changes uh, coming to coming to a new game. And I think this sort of older retail release, long silence, expansion, long silence, expansion, uh, that feels now like nothing has changed, but suddenly it feels like, okay, so that game's basically abandoned, right? <laughs> I, I worry about that is there's a lot of games that after what I would say is a reasonable amount of time are, are called like abandoned where like, oh, this doesn't get supporter patches anymore. Like, no, it's just a done game. What do you what do you want? Yeah. And like genuinely, there's a part of me that wishes that like it were maybe clearly this is what's most viable. I do wish there were occasionally more willingness to sort of tie off a game uh, and make the big changes in the next one. Um, but that's, that's tough. Uh, but like I made a list of the expansions that have come out for games that I want to play more of just in the time where I've been playing Pathfinder. <laughs> and it's like, <laughs> you're literally playing Pathfinder and making lists of shit. You'd rather be playing, <laughs> not necessarily rather be playing, but need to for this fucking show uh so uh but yeah like literally every goddamn strategy game except civ and hearts of iron i don't know if we have a release date for that one yet is going to have 
a some sort of release between like late August and early December. Uh, we got XCOM 2, Total Warhammer 2, Surviving Mars, City Skylines, Crusader Kings, EU4, Stellaris is the last one that's coming in early December now. Um, and like two other incredibly important games. Uh, and it's just like overwhelming because all of these are games that I have already played for dozens or hundreds of hours. And if I get into this, we'll play for dozens or hundreds of hours. Uh, more. So, yeah. I, it, you know, some of that is just that there are a whole lot of good strategy games right now at a level that I don't think we've ever had before. You know what strategy game doesn't need DLC or patches or updates at all? Games uh, of food. And, and also features thrilling one-on-one action that requires a lot of attention. Uh, the current World Chess Championships are, are going on with a thrilling um, eight rounds in. I've heard America's draw- good. Uh, America is good with Fabiano Caruana, um, but d- depending on your outlook of, of how the game should play out, after eight rounds of the World Championship, uh, it's been eight straight draws, which is hard to sell to people as exciting. Is it exciting? Are you excited? Or are you like, damn, draws? I'm ex- I'm excited to a point because there's been some really good games, but the problem with that is that if it gets to a draw at the end of the 12 matches, they go to rapid time controls, and I'm just of the opinion that you shouldn't determine the world championship on rapid um yeah especially because the, the incumbent is uh, he's like one of the world's best at that right um more so than the challenger should be like playoff hockey where we'll just keep you on the ice until somebody yeah. wins or somebody dies right yeah i i would support that i i, I yeah i felt the need to get in, that in there um we talked a little bit about stuff coming up i, I think we have a good roster of shows coming up in the hopper or uh, topics to, to bring up including winter wargaming yeah i've already uh, i've already started we're I'm gonna get you on that gary grigsby this this winter a year later uh oh the civil war game yeah all right well you're gonna have to you're gonna have to do some lifting to get to bring us all together over that uh <laughs> war in the west scarred me uh <laughs> i like I have cooled on Gary Grigsby again. I'm back where I was before War in the East. Uh, so now I have to be sold once more uh, on, on, the, on the wisdom of that. What I'm going to be playing is Armored Brigade, uh, which is a follow-up to Flashpoint campaigns. Uh, though that's also made some choices that I'm really curious to see how they'll work. Um, Michael, do you, think, do you think it is a good idea or uh-huh. a questionable one mm-hmm. that... The game doesn't really have many scenarios, per se. What it does have is a really high-fidelity map of, uh, 19, of parts of 1980s Germany. And you can just sort of pick a part of that map and what you want to fight in that map and just have them go at each other. Uh, that's a good scenario, right? I, I don't know. You're kind of selling it to me. Like, As, Isn't that how Fields of Glory 2 worked? Did we played for like... An hour and only Troy continued. <laughs> no, Fields of Glory Two was good. And it, I, I this game, I have no difficulties think thinking that this game might be good. It's just that when you have that sort of vagueness in a a tactical game without like some some sort of hook holding it together, uh, yeah, it gets a little tough. Like that, this was a problem with Steel Division on release, especially yeah. was that you know it was like these are really fun battles, but 
there isn't quite a hook, especially if you don't have like an online crew. Yeah. Speaking of online crews, you want to play some Steel Division? Well, th- that. Uh, but also, I, Michael, you and I are going to have a special winter of wargaming, the winter of a command ops campaign. I was going to ask if you were just teasing me about oh, no. that or if we were going to. I am uh, deadly dive- serious. Okay. All right. Yeah, like, I, I've. I'm 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 on board with that. Do you like the Aegean? I hope you like the Aegean. <laughs> Cuz we're going there. All right. Let's do it. All I right. Think that'll be good. That'll be good clean fun. Uh well, it'll be uh you know, Luftwaffe paratrooper storming Crete, but it'll be some kind of fun. <laughs> uh anyway, that will do it for this week. We'll be back next week with more strategy discussion. Three moves ahead is produced as always by me? It's awkward when you're here. I know. What my, do you say? My, what do my, you do? <laughs> Michael Hermes, guy. don't listen to this. Three Moves Ahead is produced, as always, by Michael Hermes and is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show and discuss this episode with our community at threemovesahead.net or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 3MA. Finally, Three Moves Ahead is supported by listeners just like you on Patreon. You can learn more at patreon.com slash 3MA. Uh, anyway, we'll be back next week with another episode. Until then... For Rowan, for Michael, this is Rob Zachney saying goodnight. That was good. You really brought the energy at the end there. Oh, yeah. <laughs> at the end.